Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians. It's chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And that can be found on page 831 in the Black Pew Bible. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that as the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. morning. Good to see some familiar faces back in town this week and uh, lots of visitors today. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time this month, we've been doing a a series in the season of Advent and we've been looking at the meaning and the implications of Christmas. What's called the incarnation, the making flesh, that God the Son became one of us so that we could become sons of God. And the passage we've just read in Philippians is probably one of the most extraordinary, most complete pictures of the meaning of the incarnation that we have in the whole Bible. It's absolutely stunning when you read it. And yet, I think as you look at it closely, we also find that, humanly speaking, it's absolutely shocking. And so the title of our message today is The Controversy of Christmas. Some of us are familiar with some of the political controversies that have surrounded Christmas in in recent decades, especially in the U.S. and Canada and, and Britain, but you may be less familiar with just how controversial Christmas has been through its entire history. Even if uh, a lot of the reasons that have made it controversial, even if they've been kind of trivial on the surface, I think the reason they keep resurfacing is that they point to a much deeper controversy that is really at the core of what the incarnation means. It cuts down to the reality of what it means to be spiritual. And so Christmas at its core, I think, has this controversy in it. And I want to look today at the intersection between Christmas, Christianity, and culture. Just a small topic. (laughs) Uh, There's one one thing about Christmas, the season of Christmas, that's that's always bothered me, or, or I'd say has bothered me for a long time. And... It seems to me that ever since social media has taken its death grip on our lives, I get more and more bombarded as the years go by with conspiracy theory videos (laughs) and articles telling us how all our favorite singers are part of the Illuminati and how the moon landing never happened and how 9-11 was a hoax and 
well, I mean, maybe it's just the people that I know. <laughs> maybe you don't see those things. But one of the most common ones that I see is the true meaning of Christmas. And it's always ominously said that way with very dark, brooding music in the background. And what it says, what, what these, what these uh, videos and articles say is, Christmas is nothing more than a pagan holiday. Everything about it, the story, the symbolism, the traditions, they all have their roots in paganism. Now, as you analyze those videos, on the surface, there's actually a lot that is completely accurate. Christians were most likely not the ones to celebrate, not the first ones to celebrate the birth of a god on December 25th or whatever date it is in your home culture. They weren't the first ones to hold festivals of light in the darkest season of the year or hold uh, feasts or decorate their houses with evergreens or believe in benevolent spirits flying through the sky in the winter giving out gifts. Christians, in fact, didn't celebrate birthdays at all for hundreds of years. And we also know from what the Gospels tell us that Jesus almost certainly wasn't born in winter. He was most probably born in spring or, or, um, or maybe in the summer. So in the face of all that, how do we respond to this challenge? Is it all just a huge conspiracy? Is Christmas just a, a thinly veiled lie? I know for a lot of people who come into contact with these things for the first time, it can feel very unsettling. And what I want to show us in this passage is that not only are these elements that we find, not only are they not a threat, but they're exactly what we should expect to find if the incarnation is really true. So the first thing about this is that I think it's interesting you see both religious Christian people and secular, skeptical people giving the same argument, which is, that should make us raise an eyebrow in itself. But claims like this, they're really just an echo of things that have been said for centuries. These are arguments that have been around for hundreds of years. So on the, on the religious side, probably the best example is the, the 17th century Puritans. Now, I remember as a teenager learning history in England, the Puritans were history's most famous killjoys. Why? Because when they came into power after the English Civil War, they banned Christmas. It's like a nation of Grinches. <laughs> they, they banned Christmas for 25 years. Now, for me as a teenager, I couldn't conceive of the evil of banning Christmas something I couldn't fathom. <laughs> but as I've been reading up on the history of Christmas, I begin to see why. They actually had pretty good reason. Uh, the historian Stephen Nissenbaum, he wrote a book called The Battle for Christmas, and it shows that the, the Christmas that the Puritans rejected um, has very little to do with the Christmas that we celebrate today. The, the Christmas that they knew was almost unrecognizable for us today. Christmas today, you probably know it as a nice, 
children, family-centered holiday that takes place indoors around warm fires with cookies and milk left out for Santa. But for hundreds of years, Christmas was essentially the winter Mardi Gras. It was the time to absolutely let loose, to indulge, a time of excess and drunkenness. And, and all before the, the, the worst part of the winter really set in, it was a time to just indulge. And so often it led to riots in the streets. It led to um, home invasions. It led to even public orgies. It was completely different. <laughs> One, one 16th century bishop said, men dishonor Christ more in the 12 days of Christmas than in all the 12 months besides. So the Puritans banned it for 25 years in England. They actually did much better in New England. In New England, they banned it for well over 100 years. In fact, Christmas only became a federal American holiday in 1870. So, All these pagan elements, they were never really a secret. (laughs) It was never really hidden. The Victorians did their best to try and tone it all down and make it it nice and family-friendly. And um, even though that's the case and that's the Christmas that we know today, there's still a lot of people that, that will reject it. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, officially reject Christmas, and it's because of these pagan influences. And so you could, you, could, you could sum up this position as Christmas is of human pagan origin, therefore we reject it. We reject Christmas. But you also see this argument being given from the total opposite side. You see the same evidence being used by um, skeptical uh, secular people The same evidence, but leading to a very different conclusion. And you could sum up this side as, Christmas is of human pagan origin, therefore we reject Christ. And the reason is, when when people bring up this topic from a secular point of view, what they're trying to say is, Christmas is just another pagan myth Christianity is false because it's nothing more than just another old fertility religion. It's, a, it's just a, a copy of all the old pagan mythologies. And really, this is, this is also a very old idea. This is a theory that was popularized in a book that came out in 1890 by an anthropologist called James Fraser. It was called The, the Golden Bough. And Fraser attempted to show that all the world religions were based on myths that came up out of the, the crop cycle. Human beings were, were so dependent on nature and the, and the, the cycle of crops and the, the, you know, the, the seed going into the ground and apparently dying and then resurrecting in the spring that he says we built rituals out of these and we mythologized it and we made gods that lived out these myths. And so the religions came about. Myths of a, of a dying and resurrecting God of vegetation, or the corn God, it's sometimes called. And so Jesus Christ, the dying and resurrecting God, according to this theory, is nothing more than just another one of these myths. It's just another purely human invention. And that's a, that's a theory that you'll come across quite often today as well. 
And the problem is, I think, most people don't know that academics actually have rejected that theory for decades, but it trickles down into the public consciousness, and we don't really keep up to date with, with, um, with where people that actually know what they're talking about uh, are. <laughs> but a lot of what Fraser said, it was based on, on superficial similarities. There wasn't really any historical foundation for it. And so, even if that's true, it is still the fact that there are some similarities between the story of Jesus and, and these, these mythologies. And so what do we do with that? Is that a cause for concern? Is that a cause for, for panic? Is the story of Jesus just a reflection of the circle of life? You know, the seed goes into the ground, it passes through the death of winter, and it's reborn in, in spring as the, the life-giving plant. Well, C.S. Lewis talked about, a lot about this. I mentioned C.S. Lewis. I try in every other sermon, so I don't... So you think I read at least more than one author. But he talks about this in, in a few essays. Uh, and he points out that we can't really deny that Jesus does, in fact, fit this pattern. He really is uh, a figure that, that dies and, 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 and rises again like all these myths. But I think that the problem for the secular argument and the religious argument, is that he fits them a little too well. The first thing that we read in in verse 6 is, Christ was in very nature God. In very nature God. That's one of the strongest statements of Christ's divinity anywhere in Scripture. Your translation might say, uh, had the form of God, but it's the Greek word morphe, which means the, the essential qualities, the very, very nature is a better translation. Um, he was in very nature God, very truly God. But it says he didn't cling to that equality with God. He didn't grasp onto it, but he willingly emptied himself of it and took on human form. He went downwards. Now, the pagans essentially believed in gods that were part of the physical universe. They were made up of the same stuff of matter of the universe. So for that kind of God to become a man, it really wasn't that big of a jump. But for Jews, it was completely different. The Jews believed that God, there was one true God who was not related or or part of creation at all, rather creation came out of him, and he stands above it. He stands separate from it. God was utterly transcendent. And so for that kind of God to become a man was utterly unthinkable. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was an idea that their entire culture and psychological conditioning excluded. And Paul is saying that God became man. So he, he comes down, he descends. And it, not just any man, he could have come as a king, he could have come as, as a warrior or some person of influence, but it's, instead he goes down, not just into humanity, but even further still. It says, in addition to being very nature God, he took on the very nature of a servant. 
He didn't give up being God. He took on the nature of being a servant. And the word there for servant is, is bond servant, or, you, or we would call it a slave. Jesus not only adopts humanity, but he goes to the furthest possible rung on the social, social ladder. He was truly God, but we see here he is fully human in the, in the fullest sense. Not only, did the, not only that, if you, if you follow it here, it's this long descent downwards and it keeps going. Not only did he become human, became a servant, it says he became a humble servant. Among servants, he humbled himself even lower. Humble to the point that he was willing to descend even further than life itself. He descended into death, beyond life. And it still gets lower. Because not only did he submit himself to death, but he descended into the most humiliating, shameful kind of death that the, that the, Romans, uh, the Roman world had, had yet seen. He descended into a kind of death that only the most hated, reviled, subhuman people considered would be subjected to. To be stripped naked, to be nailed to a piece of wood, slowly suffocating for all to see. That was a kind of death that both the Jews and the Romans, they agreed, that is a kind of death that only someone that's under a curse is going to suffer. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 something that, that states that in such a shocking way. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus not only descended into death and into the worst kind of death possible, but he actually became sin. He became the curse so that the curse could be broken. We see this long descent and then the ascension, the reascent. Jesus being in very nature God, he descends lower than any of these other myths had ever imagined. The gap was far greater. He takes on the very lowest nature of man. He takes on even man's curse. And then he rises back up again. And it says, God has exalted him above every other name and everyone to whom he was a servant, everyone that he served will serve him, will swear allegiance to him, will confess that he really is the Lord. So he goes down becomes all of that, and then lifts it up with him. As he rises, he raises man with him. We saw in Ephesians that those that are in Christ are seated in heavenly places with him. And he raises all of nature with him. It says all things in heaven and earth will be united in him, will be reconciled in him. And then he says, At the end of the story, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so we see this pattern of descent and reascent. The dying God that was in all those ancient myths. But we not only see it there, we see it at a level that none of the other ones even comes close to. The highs are 
unimaginably higher. The lows are unthinkably lower. It takes all those elements and it transcends them. It goes far beyond them. And C.S. Lewis points out that there's one massive and very interesting difference. All the myths of, whether it's, whether it's Balder from the Norse mythology or Osiris from the, the Egyptians or, or Mithras, I think, from the Persians or, uh, or um, Adonis, I think, from the Greeks, all of those stories, they take place in no particular place, no particular time. They take place in kind of this symbolic realm outside of time, outside of space. But when we come to Jesus, all of a sudden, we're talking about a specific place, a specific time, a historical person being crucified under a historical, datable, verifiable Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate, and and causing real, historical, verifiable consequences. And so Lewis said, and he was an expert in, in, in ancient literature, that's what he did for a living, he said, this, this is very strange because it's nothing like anything you see in ancient literature. Either these things were being recorded really as history or the writers of the Gospels invented the literary genre of realism 1,800 years before the Victorians started doing it. He said when he finally came to read the Gospels, he, you know, he knew all the myths, he loved them. When he finally came to read the Gospels, he was so disappointed <laughs> because he said There's, all the elements are there, but they don't do anything with them. They seem to be crying out to, to be connected to this myth, but there's hardly anything about it in the Gospels. Jesus, in passing, the only thing he mentions is if, if a seed doesn't fall to the ground and die, then it can't, it can't live. And that's pretty much all there is. So all these stories of the dying God turned up all around the world, and yet how strange is it that the only one of these stories that could actually be seen as historical turns up among the only people who had been conditioned through all of their culture and religion and psychology to never think that such a thing could be possible, to never even conceive of it. If it came, if, if what the gospel writers wrote about Jesus, if it all came from those, those corn god myths, wouldn't you think you'd see a little bit more of that influence in how they wrote? It's almost like the New Testament writers, they, they don't know what they have. They don't know what they have. It's, it's kind of like someone finally discovering incredible evidence for the Loch Ness Monster. But that person has never heard of the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> They don't know what they have in their hands. And actually, for C.S. Lewis, this is one of the reasons that convinced him to become a Christian. He said, what if all the images are absent because the reality has finally arrived? What if all the shadows have vanished because the light has finally stepped into the picture? He said the Christian story, 
was myth that became fact. It was true myth. The true myth that all the other stories, even nature itself, had been looking forward to, they'd been pointing to. The reality that they only dimly reflected. Jesus doesn't just echo all those dying God myths. He fulfills them. He fulfills everything that was true in them because he is the marriage of heaven and earth. He took on the physical so that he could raise it with him. He takes on glory. He he divests himself of his glory, comes into nature, and raises nature, gives it glory so that it can be united finally again with 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 its spiritual purpose. And so... It's a principle that's all through nature, it's all through human culture, because it's there in God first. And it's the nature religions attesting to it. It's the reality that they're pointing to. And so, all of that to say, we begin to see here, I hope, why the message of Christmas is so fundamentally controversial. Paul begins this passage by saying, Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind. But the problem with Christmas is that it's too earthly for the religious mindset and it's too heavenly for the secular mindset. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the gospel is a stumbling block to religious Jews and it's foolishness to irreligious Gentiles. Religion, so you have these these two poles. Religion says, Christmas has been invaded by culture, by human, non-Christian roots. And therefore, we have to reject these cultural elements to get back to what it should be, which is purely spiritual. That's the religious mindset. The secular mindset says, Chris, uh, culture, it flips it, it says, oh, this, this series is glorious dirt. Well, the incarnation, that God would become a man, it's too dirty for the religious and it's too glorious. Jesus, completely like us, no different from us, completely physical and human, or we want to make him completely unlike us, that he's completely God, and yet the incarnation says he's both. Fully God and fully man. All the world's religions, they either want to reject the world or they want to reject the heavenly. They either teach that nature is everything and should be worshipped, or they teach that nature is nothing and should be rejected. But what we see in the incarnation is a third way. It's something totally different. Jesus holds heaven and earth together. He affirms both of them. He denies neither of them. So contrary to the secular mindset, the incarnation is this radical statement that the physical is not all that there is. That heaven, at one point in history, stepped into earth. That the material universe is not ultimate reality. That nature is not ultimate. That God, the creator, entered the creation. That the author of life wrote himself into the novel. And contrary to the religious mindset, the incarnation is this radical affirmation of the physical world. The gospel says Christmas is God, not 
rejecting or simply affirming, but God inhabiting culture, redeeming the material so that it can be united with the spiritual again. The gospel says heaven is good and real. Earth is also good and real. And they're united in Jesus who was both fully God and fully man. And both are going to be restored in him. That's why he says, behold, I'm making all things new. A new heavens, a new earth. So, I've given you so much stuff here. (laughs) What should our response be then to all the human influences that we see in some of our Christian traditions? And this, this applies to Christmas, but it applies to, to any area where, where faith and culture intersect, intersect, which is pretty much everything. Um, what we've seen is, if the incarnation is true, we should expect to see humanity involved. In these things, we have to apply the meaning of the, incarn- of the incarnation. I was talking about conspiracy theories. I think the real conspiracy theory is the one that the devil has been trying to get humanity believe- to believe right from the start, which is that the sacred and the secular are two different realms, they're completely different compartments of your life. But that's not true. God made everything for his own glory. It all belongs to him. It was all made to glorify him. Not just certain holy bits. Everything was made for the glory of God. And so there is no division between sacred and secular. All of life is to be sacred. And what you see is every every scheme to try and separate the sacred and the secular, it's doomed to fail. Because we, the very way that we're made is that we're both physical and spiritual. Human beings are are basically amphibians. We're spiritual and we're physical. You could say we're we're, uh, embodied spirits or spiritual bodies. We're both physical and spiritual. You You can't get rid of one without getting rid of the other. Heaven. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection, it's a physical existence. When Jesus resurrected, he was a physical body that could touch and, and, and speak and, and eat food. And, and all of those things are part of our destiny. We don't cease to become, uh, uh, we don't cease to be physical um, when we're saved. Uh, and in fact, Jesus is still physical today. I don't know if you realize that, but (laughs) you can't separate the two. If you're a secular person and you try and rid yourself of the sacred, you very quickly find out that it's not possible because we all base our lives and our deepest convictions on beliefs, on ultimate reality that, that are basically religious. They're essentially religious. Beliefs that tell us what is ultimate, what life is about, what right and wrong are, what our destiny is. And those are all claims that involve ultimate truth. They all go beyond what can simply come out of uh, science or logic. They, they go into the realm of what's called metaphysics or essentially the realm of, of um, spirituality, of religion. And we rely on these things. We don't have time to get into this, but we rely on these things to even be able to trust 
that we can reason, that we can do things like science, we can't get away from the spiritual. And yet on the other side, if you're a religious person and you want to try and get rid of all the traces of sinful human culture, you just as quickly find out that everything is infected. (laughs) I mean, just take our days of the week, for instance. Sunday, the day of the sun. Monday, the day of the moon. Saturday, the day of Saturn. All of the days of the week are related back to ancient Babylonian gods. And it's not just the week, it's the months. January, the month of Janus. June, the the month of uh, Juno. You know, every single one. You can go look it up. It's interesting. So, I mean, at least the years are Christian, right? 2018 years since Jesus. The years are Christian. We're safe there. But, um, but dividing time into 60 minutes in an hour or 24 hours in a day, that's all Egyptian and Babylonian. That's all pagan. <laughs> so, okay, all right. So maybe we should get rid of our language. We should go back to the pure language of the Bible. Now, this is partly what you see in the, the King James-only uh, hope I'm not treading on any toes. It, it's, what, it, it's a little bit of the tendency that you see in the King James only movement. We need to get back to the pure language of the Bible. But, but which language? Because we've already seen English is, 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 is too far gone. And we certainly can't go back to Greek because they were all pagans. So we have to go back to Hebrew, Right? which unfortunately means we lose the whole New Testament because that was written in Greek. But then you also find out that Hebrew was also influenced by the world around it. Moses borrowed literary styles from the the Canaanites. And and so how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? You very quickly realize you cannot separate the spiritual and the physical. You can't separate um, the, the, the spiritual and the material. You, we cannot purge ourselves of everything human. And thankfully, we're not meant to. Because what we see in the incarnation is exactly the opposite. Jesus took on everything human. He didn't reject it. Neither did he simply accept it the way, he, the way it was. He took it on to redeem it, to restore it. Now, what you, I'm, I'm heading towards my, my final points here, but what you see is that everything God made was inherently good. It was good in and of itself. He looked at his creation and said, behold, it is very good. Everything God made was good. But as, as Romans 1 and 2 show us, what happened as, as we began to worship the created things rather than the creator, all of Creation went topsy-turvy, upside down. We began worshiping the created things rather than the creator, and so we began misusing creation. Creation was abused and turned towards destructive ends. And really, that's, that's what sin is at the heart, using all of God's good creation in ways that do not lead to blessing, but they lead to destruction. And so creation is good. But creation is abused. And so if creation is good, it doesn't mean, if it's good but, but abused, it's good but broken, it, it means that 
we're called not just, not just to accept it the way it is. We're also not called to just destroy it. We're called to bring it back. We're called to redeem it. Restore it. To turn it back to its original purpose, which was to bring glory to God. Now, I, I thought of one very personal example of this for me. I remember when I was starting off making music, I make, well, I'll tell you in a second, but uh, when I started off making music as, as a 12-year-old or so, I, I made this whole CD and, and someone heard it and they said, Ian, your music's really great. Shame it's of the devil. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> now, the problem, of course, was that it was rap music. And rap music had its start in the streets of New York and not in the church, therefore evil. And I remember another woman uh, telling me around that same time, if it's not of God, talking about music, if it's not of God, then it's of the devil. Now, at the time, that had a kind of an effect on me, but as I think about it now, if you follow that logic all the way through, it very quickly becomes absurd again. So think, let's, let's think about this. This is a theological exercise in, in, in rap music, okay? What exactly is inherently evil about rap? Is it the, the rhythms? Is it the instruments or, you know, computers that are made, uh, that, that are used to make it? Is it Okay, maybe it's not the instruments or the, or, the, or the rhythms, but maybe it's the order of the beats or the, the order of the notes because we're all using the same musical scale. So maybe it's the particular arrangement of the notes and the beats. Um, or is it the person making it? So if, if a non-Christian plumber lays a pipe, is that pipe now inherently evil? Yeah? <laughs> I'm simplifying this a little bit, but, you know. So if a Christian played those same notes and rhythms, would it now become Christian? Well, not according to this, this, this woman, but it's funny. Even Martin Luther used popular tunes from German culture for his, for his hymns, some of which we still sing today. Um, the music we played, well, you can bring it to today, and I'll implicate the whole worship team. The music we played today, the instruments we played, the drums, the guitar, this comes from rock music. Now, you know, you have the same thing in almost every generation. Last generation, it, you know, maybe this generation it was rap, and before that it was rock, and before that it was jazz, and before that it was blues, and before that it was, you know, whatever it was. Um, every musical genre... It's simply a style. It's a way of arranging those elements. Um, and it can be used in line with God's design or it can be used out of line with God's design. And what it influences it is, is the meanings attached to it, the meanings given to it by the, the author or, or sometimes also the meanings attributed to it by the people around it. It gets a little complicated. But the basic principle is sound belongs to God. The devil doesn't actually create anything. 
He only distorts things. He takes things that are, are good in and of themselves and distorts them and uses them for purposes that are contrary to what God designed. In fact, and I've mentioned, I mentioned this a lot, but in Genesis 1, humanity is actually given the task of creating culture, of taking the elements that God's given and shaping them into new and, and, and beautiful things. And so culture is a God-given command. Go forth and multiply. And nowhere do we see culture more affirmed than in the Incarnation. Culture is good in and of itself. But of course, culture, just like everything else, can be twisted and turned to be contrary to God's desires. But what we see is Jesus didn't just reject matter. He didn't reject culture. He didn't deny it in, value of the spir- in, 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 in favor of the spiritual. Um, he didn't also do the opposite, just kind of join in and, and just affirm everything about it and leave it how it is, Jesus entered into it, took it on fully, so that he could resurrect it. So that he could redeem and restore it. Just one more example. Um, Jesus actually quotes Greek pagan proverbs. When, when he meets Paul in the resurrection, he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That was actually a Greek proverb. Um, Paul directly quotes pagan poets and philosophers in, in 1 Corinthians and, other, and, 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 um, uh, and Acts 17. Um, and he uses them, just as Jesus does, to teach truth about God. And so, are these similarities a threat? Not at all. They take them and redeem them. They take what's true in those thoughts, they lift them, they elevate them into the true light that they were always reflecting. Because, and, and here's, here's the reason, all truth is God's truth. So truth is true wherever you find it, no matter who says it. Uh, Madeline Langle said that one of the deepest messages of the incarnation is, there is nothing so secular that it cannot be sacred. So, should we celebrate Christmas even though there's many practices that originated in pagan cultures? Well, I hope you followed me this far. Evergreen, you know, decorating your house and decking the halls with evergreens is not evil because it comes from human traditions, nor is giving gifts, nor is Santa Claus or celebrating birthdays. We can take all those things and celebrate the good in them. We can take the meaning that they once had, we can baptize it, uh, Boyd, and uh, we can baptize it and elevate it to the full light. We can elevate it to, to the truth that they ultimately reflect. They're not bad in it, it um, but just because they're not bad in and of themselves, it doesn't mean they can't be used destructively. And so what this means is we can't just be blind about this stuff. We can't be ignorant. We can't just blindly affirm everything that, that uh, everything of our culture around us. If that becomes the center of Christmas, if all those cultural pagan elements become the center of Christmas to the exclusion of the Christ of Christmas— 
you lose the meaning. Jesus ceases to be God. And yet, if you go to the other extreme and you just try and reject it and rid yourself of all of it, we can't do that either because the, 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 the incarnation tells us that human culture is blessed, that the physical world is good. If you forsake the earthly for the spiritual, then Jesus ceases to be human. Instead, what we're called to do is to baptize it, to make it descend and die to its, to its sin and, and misuse and resurrect it into its original intention. To lift it into the true light, to lift the earthly into its heavenly purpose. And so that's that's not an easy thing to do. That takes a lot of wisdom. It means that it's not going to be the same for every person. It's not going to be the same in every situation. We have to see things for what they are. We have to judge them clearly. But then once we have done that, once we've done that hard work, we have to redeem it. We have to purchase those things back from slavery so that they can be set free to worship the true and living God. And thankfully, this doesn't all just rest on us because Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. We are simply participating We have the joy of joining in on what Jesus is already busy doing. There's a revolution that's been set in motion. That that seed, you may not see it yet, but it's germinating. You may not see spring yet, but it's coming. The flowers are beginning to spring, and we see the evidence of that in the resurrection. And that is the the, the story of Advent that we're we're between those two ages in that time of waiting for all of this to be fulfilled. And we get to play a part in it. Scripture says that he has reconciled the, the, the world to himself and that in turn he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so the incarnation is this controversial, radical affirmation of the physical, proclamation of the, of the, of the spiritual and uniting them in the person of Jesus. And so that, that's what Christmas is all about. One of the things. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you that you've, you've shown us a, a third way. Lord, that we don't have to look at the world around us and, and condemn it all as, as evil and just that we need to escape it and reject it. And neither do we have to just simply fit in and swim with the current. But just like you inhabited this world and our culture and even took on the curse of our sin, not to just leave us how we are, but to radically transform us, to lift us back up into heavenly places that were always destined for us, and restore us to our true purpose. Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom as we deal with all these these difficult issues between uh, our faith and our culture and following you and being in the world and yet not being of it. Give us wisdom. Give us boldness in you because you have promised that you will bring this good work to completion. We pray in Jesus' name.